Hello and welcome to the Living Life Differently podcast. We are the Mahojos, I'm Ali and I'm Amy and we live in a static caravan on a farm in South Wales with our son Ollie and our dog Dizzy. We're currently on a year off together waiting patiently to get going on a European campervan adventure. In the meantime we decided to set up this podcast to share stories of women who are living life differently, women who are doing things different to the norm. So if you're feeling a little stuck in life or need confidence to make some big changes, then keep listening as we have some great guests to inspire and guide you. In this episode, we speak with Ali's sister, Ellie, who packed up her life into a £400 ex-builders van, along with her cat, and moved to the French Alps. Ellie went to France with very basic French language skills and took a huge 35 grand a year drop in salary. It was a big gamble. Did it pay off? Listen now to find out. Morning. How's it going? How are you? Yeah, good, good. Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, we're good, thanks. So today is all about finding out a bit about your life and how you're living it differently, um, because you've got quite an interesting backstory in terms of how you ended up in France a few years ago. Um, so do you want to give us a little bit of a snapshot about, you know, what happened about 10 years ago you went there you know how did that come about what was going on for you at the time in the UK yeah so it was it was pushing 12 years ago now actually it was around uh 2008 2009 and obviously there was the huge financial crash um and so I at the time just before that all happened I was living in a lovely house had a lovely car had a great job nice salary and then um two businesses that I ended up working for um, basically lost really big customers Um, and so I lost my job the first time round because of that so I was then scrabbling around trying to find another job found one quite quickly worked in that place for about a year and then they lost a huge chunk of their business as well as far as I can remember it was a long time ago now Um, and so I was in this position where all of a sudden I'd gone from having this amazing lifestyle. So I thought, anyway, I thought what was important was having a nice house, you know, having a nice car, going away for the weekends, having a a nice mountain bike, um, traveling to, you know, different cities around Europe with my friends. I had this great lifestyle. So I thought, because it was kind of what, I guess there's sort of like, you're brought up to kind of expect, you know, 2.4 kids and the dog and all that. Um, I didn't have that, I had cat, a cat. And I chose not to have children, which is another factor. Um, So I was left in this position where I couldn't afford my three-story house. I couldn't afford my car. And I was sort of rapidly sort of running out of of being able to afford to pay the mortgage. And if you remember, I came to live with you for a little while in Wales. Um, And so I, yeah, what was I doing? I I basically sort of had to... um, scrabble around trying to find a, a rental agent which I'd never done before I'd lived in this beautiful house which I spent loads of money doing up and decorating and I was really really proud of that house but again it's very materialistic kind of thoughts beautiful car I loved my Audi oh my god I missed that car <laughs> uh, again it, it was all sort of like you know I'd gone from this very much of a mind of like possessions and things and all these sparkly bits and bobs and adventures um to literally almost having nothing. Uh, I couldn't pay the mortgage. I had to basically give the car back. I owed the car financiers uh, quite a lot of money. I owed Northern Rock a shitload of money. Um, And so I I got some tenants in 
and I decided, um, okay, well, I like that sort of lifestyle of travel and adventure. I like going away to different places and seeing seeing new things. How can I kind of do that affordably and still have a bit of an adventure? So I just sort of, I don't know where the idea came from, but I just started looking at living overseas. And because I really love mountain biking, I um, started investigating really good mountain bike areas in Europe because I thought, well, Europe's close enough. I had considered Canada, but then looking at the logistics of having family and friends coming over to visit, it's like eight to 10 hour flights or whatever it was. And it, it, that just seemed a little bit too far, but it wasn't sort of off the radar longer term. Um, and so I temporarily moved in with you. I think during that time, I found a job at a rubbishy little hotel in a, in a village in, in a, a ski resort in the French Alps. Um, and so I decided that if I couldn't have that kind of lifestyle where I could afford to go away and pay for holidays and stuff, then why don't I just go and live somewhere that would be a holiday destination, that is a holiday destination for lots of other people, and just see if I could kind of carve out a bit of a life for myself. Um, so I chose mm -hmm. this little village called Leger, um, which was where one of the mountain bike World Cups had been back in, I don't know, 2003 or four or something. And actually, weirdly enough, the hotel that I stay at, that I was working at, for the six months that I was there um, was actually where the mountain bike World Cup teams had stayed or the, U the UK teams had stayed anyway. Um, so that was all kind of like, okay, well, it's mountain biking. I'll meet people. I'll give it a shot. What's the worst that could happen? So I'd literally, I downsized from my big three-story house into uh, a builder's van, which I got for 400 quid. So I'd swapped like a 15 grand Audi for a builder's van for 400 quid, loaded it to the gunnels, left loads of other stuff in the house for the people to rent um, and I up sticks and I, via your house in Wales <laughs> I ended up in the Alps. So uh, I mean that journey to making that decision to buy the builder's van it was a beautiful builder's van wasn't it what colour was it? Bright orange. <laughs> we literally just had the lights taken off it and I think there was still holes in the roof where the, you know, the big flashing lights were on the back, which was leaking for quite some time after I had it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was sort of before, you know, the whole big evolution of van life um, kind of happened. And I, and I hadn't really planned on living in the van, but I was kind of like, I know I need to be mobile and I know I need to like take a load of my possessions with me and my cat tree called Blessing, um, who <laughs> who was on the big bench seat in a, in a rabbit cage on the front with me so he could kind of stretch out and move around. Um, yeah, so I just I just thought it was that whole thing of like I like I like being away. I like going to different places and exploring. So how can I achieve that? Um, and I basically decided that going to live in a different country wouldn't be such a bad idea, right? What's the worst that could happen? And I given myself my head. I think I set myself six months. I'll give it a try for six months and I'll see what happens. If it doesn't work out, I'll come back, tail between my legs um and uh, I'll figure something out in the UK because again you know I might not go back into that same salary band or I might not have such a nice car or house yeah. or whatever but I'm still here I'm still alive it's not really the end of the world it felt like it at the time I tell you that when I lost yeah. the house well I, I eventually lost the house I can come back to that but when I had to move out of that house there was this whole kind of like ugh, I felt socially kind of crushed it was like I was a failure um but I knew I wasn't because it was just kind of like um, a 
I suppose it's what people expect you to achieve. There's a lot of that sort of mm. culture in the UK, I think, isn't there? That you're keeping up with the Joneses and you're sort of comparing your house to the neighbour's house. Or, oh, they've got a nice car. Maybe we should upgrade ours or that whole very materialistic sort of way of looking at things. And I mean, I did come crashing down with a big bump, um, you know, because of because of losing my job and everything and not having that kind of money. Um, but I quickly realised, looking around at, you know, the stuff in the house that I had, I was like, these are just possessions, you know, these are just things. I may have loved buying them, I may have loved how they looked in the house, but ultimately, like, they are not me, they're not a part of me, they're just things. They can be replaced, you know, yeah. I can build this if I want to, I can rebuild that somewhere else, like, it's not the end of the world. So I sold off a whole bunch of stuff, I left a load of stuff in the house to, to rent out. I gave away some stuff to my friends and uh, and then packed up whatever else I thought I needed to go to France with in the van. So, yeah. So from the time that things kind of get difficult financially with the job losses and you starting to think that maybe you wanted a different life, what, and you know, what, what kind of timescale was it between you started to have, you know, the, that kind of change in life that wasn't that in your control to the point that you kind of took control and decided right this is what I'm going to do I'm going to change my life was that over a period of months or years what kind of time scale I think between six months and a year because for, for a considerable chunk of time at first I was trying to figure out um, how can I make ends meet and how can I not let this crash and burn um, and I was going through quite a lot of stress about how am I going to afford to pay the mortgage back. And I was sort of running around chasing my tail, trying to find jobs, not getting anywhere. So there was that whole kind of like, I need to maintain this kind of period of time, which I think I guess was a, a chunk of months. Um, and so I suppose between, if you think, I don't know, between 2008 and 2009, that was that whole kind of transition period. So I, I guess about a year really. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I just, I just didn't want to sort of I don't know I don't know what really drove me to do it it was just like I thought well it's it, why not it's a good time for change you know the situation in the UK was pretty dire jobs were hard to come by you know everybody was kind of like in a bit of um, a bad situation I knew I couldn't afford to to jump straight in and buy another house um yeah I just it was just that kind of un, unsurety I suppose of like I didn't know what the future was going to hold so why don't I just try and carve out my own future and carve out my own path a little bit um, yeah and I didn't really have anything anybody to lean on to go off of against I mean I guess had you been to Malta at that point I can't remember had you lived in Malta by then? um no I'd been in, so I'd been around the world with my backpack and after I'd came I'd come back to live with you for a short time so that would have been 2006 um, ah. before you know going off and doing other things so so I've been away and done that what what age were you when this happened and what remember your friends and family thinking about what planning to do so what I'm 45 now so I was 32 32 33 yeah I think well I know every I think everybody friends and family <laughs> included I think you all thought like oh she'll be back She'll be back. Um, and I do remember, I remember getting messages from people saying like, oh, you know, so when are you coming back then? And I was like, I'm not sure that I am, you know. And, you know, six months turned into uh, seven or eight months, turned into a year, turned into two years. And before I knew it, I mean, I'd stayed, I stayed in Leger for um, 
two or three, two years, give or take. A couple of summer seasons, because summer was all about mountain biking, right? And just getting out on the hill as much as possible. There's an amazing bike park there and you can ride all the way to Switzerland and back. Um, the Port de Soleil, which probably many people know. Um, and so I was having so much fun. I'd gone from um, riding, you know, my, my little carbon frame mountain bike around like Woolerton Park or, you know, parts of the Peak District and, you know, just doing lots of cross country riding. And when I got to the Alps, it was like, wow, this is like a whole nother kind of thing. And so I'd upgraded my bike to a sort of a more enduro, um, hard wearing kind of bike that could handle the downhill and stuff as well. And I was having a great time. I met so many people, so many like minded people as well, which I think was the the, the key thing for having me stay. Um, I was having a ball. I was earning a pittance, an absolute pittance. I was earning, I think my first year there, I was earning 600 euros a month and I had accommodation thrown in. Um, and so I was living in shared accommodation again. It was like going back to being a student. It was rough. It was really, <laughs> it was probably worse than student accommodation, but I didn't care. It was like, I had this shitty old van. Me and my cat were there. I, I made loads of friends. Um, and it was just a complete turnaround. And then after a couple of years of being in Leger, I kind of started to, I was saying about, you know, I could rebuild and I could start to kind of rebuild my life a little bit more. So I started to think, well, okay, it would be nice to have a little bit more money. You know, scrabbling around on 600 bucks a month is is, is nothing. Um, and especially with mountain bike repairs and other bits and bobs uh, and van maintenance as well, which God, that absolutely sucked me dry of money as well. Um, and so after a couple of years there, I decided that I could do with a better job and there were more prospects um, in a bigger town a few hours away called Chamonix um, at the foothills of Mont Blanc. And so I started to look around for jobs over there and uh, I found a job and basically went and moved there and lived there for eight years. Let's go back to that van because it sticks in my memory, not just for the fact that it was bright orange. How much did you pay for it? £400 UK. Right. So you got a four. It's rammed to the rafters. In fact, you could. I remember opening. You opened the side door when you arrived at my house the one day, and yeah. you it's couldn't like a see anything. It was like a cartoon, packed full of stuff, <laughs> and and little tree cat, you know, sat there in his little cage, and and you you've literally just put everything in this van. Your life is in this four hundred pound van, and you're ready to go. What? What was that feeling like? You've you've made the decision to go. You, you found a little job to go to, to somewhere you'd never been before, people you'd never met before. What, how were you feeling at that point? Were you excited? Were you nervous? What was going on in your head? A, a bit of everything. I mean, looking back, I think I was quite naive and, and, and a bit maybe stupid and reckless. I don't know, but I was just like, well, it's an adventure. Um, I don't remember feeling like overtly like oh my god this is going to be amazing I just kind of went I just had this really pragmatic kind of sense of I just need to I just need to do this let's get it done you know let's get there let's let's carve out a new life and, and see what happens um there was a sense of like anticipation and not knowing what was going to happen so that was a little bit of maybe apprehension um but yeah it was just like okay I'm, I'm setting off I'm going to do this and I just got that kind of dogged mindset of like I'm going to make this work you know this is going to work I'm going to do it um yeah so I didn't have a clue about bloody van maintenance and stuff and if you remember not that <laughs> set off from your house not even that far down the M4 or what was it the M4 I can't remember 
um, and I'd overfilled yeah. the oil on the van and so the whole cab, I hadn't even set off for a couple of hours I think, and the whole cab and the van started filling up with smoke and I was like, oh, holy shit, the van's going to blow up and I'm on the side of the motorway going like, what the am I doing here? Me and the cat sat on the bank by the side of the road and I'm like, oh shit, I might have blown things up and I might not be able to get to France and then the maintenance or the recovery van came and sorted me out. Um, yeah, it was just <laughs> things like that. It was like, I was just so sort of blind to certain things and prepping and whatnot. And also I remember I couldn't drive very fast. The top speed I think was about 30 or 40 miles an hour because I had so much stuff in the back. It was really heavy. <laughs> You Take even took a Christmas tree, didn't you? Huh? You even took a Christmas tree with you. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Did you get to Leger on day one? I can't remember. Did you no, arrive there days. that first yeah, day? Yeah, we, we had to do an overnight. I don't remember where it was. Somewhere on the outskirts of Paris. Well, you know, you know that journey much better than I do these days. But um, um, yeah, somewhere like not Amiens oh I don't know I can't remember the name of it anyway we ended up in this campsite which I had you know I knew that I had to kind of break it up because of the, the speed that we were going and stuff so I was like um camp <laughs> pulled up to this campsite I was like oh we'll just go over here in this little corner it's nice by the trees and uh, I had the tent you know we were we, were, we me and the cat uh, <laughs> were sleeping in the tent <laughs> night um and I tell you what <laughs> the biggest mistake I made was going to sleep next to this big row of trees because as soon as dawn came around all the birds were like whoa, 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 waking up and Treacle was like Wah! oh my god um so yeah I didn't really get that much sleep um and then he was kind of stomping around and stuff as well so that that was quite uh, quite an interesting experience and then we just cracked on and then um drove on that blooming windy road up to Leger, which was, oh, I swear to God, all the, all the locals must have been absolutely cursing me because I was going so slow and there's not, not many places to kind of overtake there as well. So yeah, it took a long time. And then when I turned up in, I actually had to go to Morzine first to meet the guys who were running the hotel. And I think I spent the night with them. And then the next day I actually got into Leger Centre. So I had to go through Leger to Morzine and then come back again. Um, and, and they did the same thing that you did, the double take when I opened the sliding door of the van. And they, <laughs> stuff. they were like, what the? <laughs> Literally the so you get, you get to Leger, you're earning 600 euros a month as a live-in, you know, employee. Um, yeah. How did that compare financially to what you were earning, you know, in the peak job before financial difficulties and, and being made redundant and things so I was earning uh I think about 42 43 grand a year <laughs> so I don't know what that is per month but uh, not 600 euros yeah. that's for sure um but like I said oh, yeah. the information was thrown and in so that was that was kind of mostly just living living uh, money basically sure and then in terms of what you actually went to France with financially what what did you have in your back pocket you know did, had you managed to save any money? You mentioned selling things. Yeah, I don't remember having that much in my back pocket, but I do remember winning on the national lottery. Do you remember that? Oh. <laughs> so this is what paid for the ferry and the fuel. Okay, so I don't know if you remember, it was at your house and I got, it was before the Euro Millions, I think. So I played the lottery and I got five numbers out of six on the national lottery. 
and I was like oh my god I've like I've paid off the mortgage for the house oh this is just an absolute <laughs> godsend my life is sorted I can go away without any problems I don't have to worry about anything and I got you to call the winning number because you have to ring up if you get a certain um number of, of stars or whatever on the on the score on the scorecard on the lottery ticket and I was trembling and I was like I can't ring them you've got to ring them so I made you call them to find out how much I'd won and I was like oh it's going to be like 40 50 grand it's going to be amazing and I think I actually won I mean it's nothing to sniff at it was like 1235 quid so that was what I had in my back pocket and I don't remember much being left in my bank account. I, I literally, I, I never had any savings ever in my life. Everything mm -hmm. was very much like live for the moment, spend the cash that you've earned that immediately, you know. So, or, or put it into the house, you know, to repair walls or fix up the kitchen or whatever it might have needed <clears throat> or maintaining the car or whatever. And so I'd never had savings throughout my whole life. I was very much in debt. I lived on credit cards. I lived on finance. Um, when I got the mortgage for the house, I got it at 110% mortgage, which thanks to Northern Rock, um, wow, that yeah. kind of hamstrung me as well. Um, so I was always indebted in, in a big way um, with, you know, finance and credit cards. And I think I'd wrapped up a whole bunch of finance into the mortgage as well. So my mortgage was much more than the actual mortgage. It was a whole load of consolidated debts too. So going back to the question of how much did I have, it was that lottery ticket winning um and not very much else to be honest yeah i actually forgot about that but now you now you mentioned the story you yeah. know it's coming and remembering how, how oh my god oh my god how much yeah. is it going to be and then a bit like yeah. oh but hey that's still that's a decent quick, you know. money exactly. so apart from, apart from finances back to the rafters with a little cat treacle um, what language skills did you take with you? Absolutely. What was the French like? We already. <laughs> it was uh, on y va à La Rochelle, like the old, you know, French school lesson level French. It was very much nothing. <laughs> Je m'appelle Ellie. And that's it. It was. It was nothing. I hadn't practiced anything before I went. I'd, I didn't know anything apart from what I'd learned at school. Bearing in mind I was 32, and I obviously left school at whatever 16 I had just this vague recollection of a few words of French that was it I hadn't planned I hadn't rehearsed anything I hadn't practiced anything or done any lessons or anything I just I just went I'll figure it out when I get there so yeah yeah so Leger life sounds quite fun in that obviously it sounds like social life was absolutely fantastic financially it wasn't brilliant but you're living in a completely different lifestyle than you were before so yeah. it sounds like they kind of offset each other a bit. So yeah. how long did you say you stayed in Leger? I think about two years, either just under or just over two years. Yeah, yeah. And I started okay. off, I think I did the first, so six then months, the first six months of that little hotel. And then I moved over to working for um, a chalet company. And that was like a nice five-star chalet up on the hill, up in La Torche, um, called Ferme de Montagne with Suzanne and Henry and um, yeah so I was kind of I went from like um, um, a do anything at the hotel sort of like making beds cleaning sick out of sinks wiping floors serving in the bar serving in the restaurant literally anything mopping floors stocking linen all of that I went from that which you can appreciate when I mentioned the sick um, you can appreciate why I might have wanted to move into something else so I went into a, <laughs> basically a posh chalet which again had accommodation thrown in 
And so for the first um, chunk of time I was living there, I basically had a little chalet to myself, which was this tiny, really, really old, like 60s chalet. It was very drafty. Um, and I was living there. There was two two bedrooms, three bedrooms. And I literally had that place to myself. And downstairs was the wine cellar. Underneath the house was the wine cellar for the chalet. And so I just literally had this like walk of like one house to the next as a commute to go to work, which was great. Um, and so I worked there for a while, again, serving in the restaurant, helping clients, you know, book ski lessons, um, fixing staff uniforms, literally anything and everything they needed. I helped in the office doing operation stuff. So again, I'd kind of like gone, gone up a level then going back to more of a, a job where I could utilize some of the skills that I had from previous work. And so got into sort of more operations and um, and actually helped with a bit of recruitment and stuff as well, driving uh, customers around in the cars, picking them up from the airport. Not that that was one of my previous skills, but I like driving. So I, I got into that a little bit as well. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was that was much more interesting and a bit more brain fodder, I guess, and sort of getting me back onto the, the ladder, if you like, of sort of more, I wouldn't say a, a, a regular job because it wasn't really a regular job that many people would identify with but it was a step up really from where I'd been before so sure okay so you start to think about okay where do I go to next and you mentioned already that you kind of up sticks again have, have you still got the van at this point do you pack the van and move to Chamonix yeah the van lasted for another couple of years so it, it made the trip from the UK to Leger it made the trip to Chamonix and I think I moved house in it another two times and then that was it. It completely went kaput. So, yeah, it, it did me good for 400 quid. I mean, I did end up spending, it, it seemed like every time I went to the garage to get something fixed, it was another 400 euros. So I got the exhaust fixed. I got a few other bits and bobs fixed. And and two or three times I spent 400 quid on it or 400 euros then um, repairing it and just, just keeping it going, you know. Um, but then ultimately the gearbox just completely went it wouldn't go into first it wouldn't go into reverse so the final move that I did in that van we had to <laughs> we had to literally manually sort of try and like um, turn the wheel and then push it into position because we couldn't get it into reverse and so a friend of mine helped me and we sort of literally <laughs> maneuvered the van into position rolled down the hill because we couldn't get it into first I did it like a whatever you call it when you do a quick start into second and then I was off up the motorway and it was only about five kilometers. And my friend was just tailing me behind the mo behind the van on the motorway just in case it conked out. And that was it. I, kn I knew it was game over, but it made it to the little white house that I lived at. It made uh -huh. it there. And that, that was it. That was it. So two two years later, yeah. I think it lasted. Yeah. So for like four, Rest in peace, years, yeah, four or five years, it lasted me. And um, I got quite attached to it in the end. You know, it wasn't an Audi. It wasn't comfortable. It was no heating. <laughs> you know there was all kinds of problems with it and the, and the holes that the lights had come off had been leaking in the back and god knows what but yeah it, it did me well it served its purpose for 400 quid and a few extra 100 euros to repair it and maintain it you know yeah. wasn't too, so. so chamonix life then what what new life did you go into there work-wise did your social life change much what was your yeah, language so skills like by then <laughs> yeah language skills have got better so um because I very much like I just practice until I get it right and I'm not afraid of getting it wrong when I'm speaking French or well now a different language which we'll come back to later I'm sure um so yeah so I'd kind of like when I was going to take the van to the garage I'd learn a phrase like I think it's the pot de chatement or it's the what de vitesse and it's like the 
um, <laughs> I've forgotten the name in English now, the exhaust or the speed, the, the gearbox. Um, uh -huh. So I'd learn phrases around a very situational way of learning. So if I had to take the cat to the vets, I'd learn a phrase for that or a couple of phrases. And then I'd try and understand what was said back to me, because the first thing is that you learn how to say something, but you don't necessarily know how to respond when they come back yeah. to you. So like, OK, yeah. But over time, if you just keep doing that, and you just keep practicing and if, if people are nice enough to kind of correct you as well in a nice way and be like oh no it's this word then if you can retain all that and just build on that because I never had lessons when I was living in Leger it was just very much off the cuff you know I'll go to the shop or I'll go and do, pick something up for the owners or whatever or I'll go and run an errand I'd make sure I try and like rehearse it and learn it so by the time I got to Chamonix my French was getting better but it still wasn't conversational it was just kind of patchy um, and so my first job in Chamonix was working with um, Tui, Crystal Ski, um, in their Chamonix office. Um, and that's where I met my best friend, Lizzie. Um, and my social life still revolved around mountain biking because there's quite a big mountain biking scene in Chamonix as well. So, yeah, met loads of people there for mountain biking. But then um, I kind of upped my level for snowboarding. So Chamonix as many people might know, is the home of extreme sports. And the mountains are really, really steep. And it's renowned for quite gnarly everything. Gnarly, Chamonix. Is just gnarly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So that was kind of like similar kind of social setup, but there was much more to do there. So like in Leger, there was only a handful of bars and, you know, quite a lot of restaurants, but not many kind of hangouts. Whereas Chamonix, there was a lot more choice. There's a lot more people because it's like a big, you know, huge long valley, lots of different ha uh, valley uh, villages and stuff as well. So, yeah, lots more to do there and lots more people to meet. So, yeah. Good. And then in terms of um, finances, obviously, Chamonix is renowned as a, an amazing tourist resort um, and it's not cheap to even it's not cheap to go there as a tourist so what was it like to live there as a resident also really expensive like pushing on the edges of like london prices for accommodation um which is a shame because you know there's a lot of people there that live to service the people that come on holiday so you know but there's also a lot of people who have houses and properties there who, li who live and work in geneva so it's it's a real um not not like a commuter belt but it's kind of like um you know a place where people would come and have their weekend house they have a big job in geneva they earn a shit ton of money and then they come up to ski in chamonix at the weekend or they go to geneva every day to work and then they come back to chamonix so those kind of people can afford to live there and live there very well um whereas the people who kind of live in the more sort of service sector um really struggle to find accommodation so there's just not enough of it around there's not enough affordable um accommodation as well and the cheaper accommodation is sort of right on the edges of, of town as well i mean i did find a, a small place that little white house was right in the center of chamonix um, and that was affordable for a while but it was also a very old house and it had lots of problems and noise and goodness knows what else um and no real outside space so you kind of like limited if you can share with other people that's great um you can cut the costs down or if you're living with a partner obviously it becomes a lot more affordable and when I first moved to Chamonix I was actually living with a boyfriend so we split the cost of a a nice little apartment down in Le Bosson um but then we broke up so um it was like okay well how are we are you know <laughs> we ended up living together even though we 
broken up six months before we, we were still living together trying to find accommodation for each other well for ourselves should I say um and so then we party company and then I went off to live in the little white house and he went wherever he went I don't know um but yeah so living on your own there is is really really tough so I ended up um kind of having a sideline job as well so I, I I was always quite handy with um well handy with practical stuff in general but I actually set up a little um kind of cash only sewing business so I'd help people fix their ski gear outdoor equipment mend rips in their clothes fix their kids jeans you know stuff like that and so over the course of the eight years that I was there um, I actually built that up to be, you know, quite a regular, um, I had loads of regular customers and then friends who'd come to me to fix stuff. So I had my salary from this job, which was like a full-time job uh, working in the office. But on the on the back of that as well, I had to have this sewing job to kind of top up my my, my money because the cost of accommodation was like, for example, the I think the little White House um, was only about, I don't know, 20 or 30 metres squared. It was tiny and it was like six or 700 euros a month. So, yeah, it was it was really, really, really expensive. And then on top of that, if you want to go skiing and you want to go snowboarding and using the lifts in the summer for mountain biking, you pretty much have to buy a lift pass because the, the mountains are so steep, you know, unless you're superwoman and you can pedal up to come down again. Um, you want to buy a lift pass, which is like in the region of 800 to 1,000 uh, euros a year. So you kind of add that in and then you add in you know maybe insurance and everything else as well it's like you know yeah it's an expensive place to live so and, and yeah. food, food and everything as well like yeah just um just pretty expensive so yeah okay what um what about the kind i don't know what the word is for it it's not logistics but it's like and it's not finances but it's like you know about the, the local taxes and in social security and all that kind of thing. Is that something that you'd already set up in Leger or was it different in Chamonix? And how, how does that kind yeah. of system work when you live in and working in France? So when I first was working in Leger, both companies I worked for were British registered. So I wasn't in the French tax system. So I was earning money in um, pounds and then having to deal with the um, uh, what's the word conversion rates and stuff. When I moved to Chamonix, it was an official job, so I was I was on the French tax system and the French payroll. And so, um, hello. Is it joining? Where was I? Uh, the yeah so. At the time, France wasn't on pay as you earn. It was when I left, but it wasn't at the beginning. So um, you had to pay tax in arrears on the previous year's salary. So the first year is effectively tax free, although it's not. You just pay it the following year and then you pay into Social Security and you also pay for um, uh, the doctors, basically. So there's a system um, where you have a carte vitale, which is like your healthcare card and you go to the doctors and you pay say 30 euros 35 euros just to be seen by the doctor and you put you give them your carte vitale and basically you get something like 70 percent of your costs reimbursed um and that's for you know pharmacy drugs or whatever else you're getting as well so you, you sort of put it all through and you give over your carte, carte vitale and you get about you know um 70 of it covered and then you pay the rest so it's this kind of reimbursement system you pay up front and then it comes back to you through the system um but yeah, the taxes are quite high comparative to 
the UK and social security wasn't too expensive. I forget the percentages, but um, again, it works on like a banding system. So, um, you know, if you're on like 20 or 30 grand, it's this much tax. And if you're on 40 or 50, it's this much. So the more you earn, obviously, the more tax you pay. So it, it kind of pays to earn less than 30 grand, I think at the time anyway. Um, and then social security was whatever, I think, I don't know, eight or 12% or something. But also like your employer pays part of the tax too. So there's this kind of whole like, even though you're employed and you pay your part of the tax, the employer pays a good chunk of that as well. So it's quite expensive for companies to take on people on the French system because they're paying an equal amount of tax, if you like, as you are. And I think that was why at the time, a lot of British companies and tour operators were still paying um, their employees on the British system so that they could avoid paying the tax into the French system because it was so expensive. Right. And that's why resort wages were typically like quite cheap as well. If you were on the French system, mm. then it was kind of like really low wages and whatnot as well. So, so yeah, compared to the UK, it was more expensive on, on taxes a little bit as well. So yeah. And then by the time I left, um, two years, two or 18 months ago, um, they'd just gone on to pay as you earn, um, which was like, oh, hallelujah. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so before we talk about um, you leaving there, because we'll kind of finish on that bit, because, you know, it's going to lead on to an exciting new episode of how you're living your life differently. Um, how many years did you end up living in France altogether? Um, it's Bella. Hello. <laughs> Um, I think 10 years, say hi, <laughs> I think 10 did years, you, oh cute, yeah, did you, and did you, did you have any idea at the time, I know you mentioned, um, you, you know, when you spoke to friends and family about it, that maybe some of them were thinking like, oh, she'll be back in six months or whatever, did you ever think in your mind that you might be there 10 years or or was it just kind of you were you were rolling with it and just I just rolled it, it and see 100%, yeah. yeah I think even for the first two years people were still like oh when are you coming back and I was like I don't know not sure that I will and I think you know the yeah, first six yeah. months it was, it was very much like you know every other person would say like oh how's it going when are you coming back because they just thought I was just going for an extended holiday or something I don't know um, and then eventually it just sort of became like, oh, well, she's in France now, so we'll stop asking her, thank God. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I just I just rolled with the punches. I was just like, you know, I'll just see what happens. And if like, you know, it just be, kind of became back to, especially moving to Chamonix and having that kind of regular Monday to Friday job, um, although it was not necessarily Monday to Friday because I was working airport weekends and stuff, but um, God, airport days. Mm. <laughs> um yeah, it, it, was, it was very much more getting back into a kind of a, a normal, you know, working week, if you like. And then the weekends or the days off that I had were just sort of spent on the mountain and chilling out and stuff. So, so yeah, that kind of quickly became okay. just normal. So it was just kind of like, oh, well, this is my life now. And I'm living in Chamonix and it's just, you know, it is what it is. And I'm quite happy. So, yeah. Let Let's just quickly mention where so you've gone from um, Nottingham, kind of half the East Midlands, not known for its, you know, dumping of snow or its gorgeous summers. <laughs> Obviously, living in Leger and Chamonix, you've got two quite distinct seasons, haven't you? The, the pretty hot summers and the pretty chilly winters. How did you adapt to that? Was that difficult at first or was that quite exciting and new? 
Yeah, it was just new. It was just a bit different. Like in, in you know, in the Alps, it can get up to like 30 degrees in the summer and hotter, um, even if you're living at altitude, which which was quite weird to me because that was like, I'm in a ski resort. Why is it like 30 degrees in the summer? Um, but yeah, no, that was that just quickly became normal. And and you know, you have to buy clothes to adapt to that, obviously, right? Because you know, you you're going from you know t-shirts and vests and you know flip-flops in the summer to like every layer that you could possibly wear just to get out and scoop snow away from the car to get to work in the morning um and you know minus 12 minus 15 just on the day-to-day you know just walking around town and then when you get on the mountain it's like it can be you know with wind chill minus ridiculous um and so you i guess the only thing i can think is that my wardrobe massively changed to adapt to that (laughs) this is just this is just what it is it's just extremely hot in the summer and the odd you know shitty rainy day coming into autumn and stuff and then extremely cold in the winter and snowy so you just get a different wardrobe to suit and it's just like literally the only the only thing i remember is just like right the summer wardrobe's going away now and all the winter gear comes out like that's it it's a huge transition you know in, in sort of autumn um and just having like options of ski gear and options of you know whatever and different winter boots and waterproof boots and stuff so yeah that that was the only real difference really i can i can think of is just that's very materialistic isn't it the clothing and the the stuff that you need and then i was like oh i need some snowshoes oh i need some poles oh i need you know <laughs> different type of snowboard for this kind of conditions or you know i need to wax my snowboard now because it's going into winter and i need to service my equipment and and then at the end of the winter it's like right i need to dust off my mountain bike and get all that serviced and so it was just very very much like yeah seasonal changes for me were more like sport related and clothing, <laughs> clothing related. <laughs> yeah yeah, it's good. So thinking back now, um, it's been really to talk about this because it's brought back so many memories for me as well, especially when you set off in that little van and you rang me an hour down the road saying that you thought you set it on fire. Um, but yeah, just I remember being so proud of you at that time that you, you were just making this massive life change and I was excited for you and nervous for you and everything but looking back now and reflecting on it is there anything you think you would have done differently if you were going to do it again or and yeah anything that you would have done differently um I don't think so it just it just happened do you know what I mean like yeah I'm not really one for looking back anyway like you know um yeah I don't I don't think I would have changed anything no I mean having a bit of extra cash would have been nice but you know that wasn't that wasn't really you know anything that important that lottery win was you know really good timing has to be said um no I wouldn't have changed anything no it would have been great to I I was gonna say it would have been great to get a, a better paid job but I was just so out of that mindset at that time of like you know materialistic stuff and going from like oh my god you know having money and like I said keeping up with the Joneses all that that had just gone and so yeah I just got on with it I think that was the kind of like I said it was a very pragmatic kind of mindset and very much like I just need to make this work and I need to be happy and you know mm. I'll just happen so now I probably wouldn't change anything because it is what it is and and the journey that I've had has been you know there's been ups and downs and bumps along the way but I wouldn't change anything I don't think Mm. yeah it's all been a really good experience and what what advice would you give to good I'm, I'm pleased what advice would you give to somebody that was thinking about making a big change in their life like like you had at the time you know whether it's goodbye changing financial circumstances or something else what advice would you give um 
don't sweat the small stuff too much like don't and also don't make too much of a plan I think that was what was kind of good for me was like I got I found a job I hadn't really done that much research about the area I sort of knew it was good for mountain biking and I'd got a job and that was it I kept it really basic I hadn't like overthought I'm going to do this in the first six months and then I'm going to do that because that plan could have failed right so and again I've never been one for making a plan for anything I've just my whole life has just been wrong with it and see what happens um so don't overthink it don't make too much of a plan obviously if you've got kids it's a different kettle of fish because you're going to have to think about schooling and all that kind of stuff as well but for anybody like me that's single and you know doesn't have kids um yeah just um don't overthink it have a have a have a loose plan but don't make it too solid um learn some language if you want before you go like i said i didn't really um i didn't really do that i kind of you know i and again, Leger, Chamonix are very English speaking anyway. So um, just be brave. Just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Don't worry too much about, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people might be in that position now with, you know, the pandemic and everything and mm. thinking, that, oh my God, my world's falling apart because this is happening and da da da. And I, and I will say, like, I was super stressed about the house and payments and crushing um, anxiety about paying the mortgage and everything else you can get past it so no matter how shit you feel maybe at the moment and you think like oh my god how am I going to get out of this you can do it you can totally do it so try and look past like the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the the angst or the the kind of the the hole that you might feel like you're in you can always get out of it you can always come out the other mm. side I've done it so if I can do it and I'm very much <laughs> you know I don't know if I can do it anyone can really so yeah I don't know if that answers the question very well but <laughs> good yeah it does I, I just think you've got a really good insight into making a massive life decision and I think it's just really topical to be having these discussions right now because we are still living through a, pan, a global pandemic and I know there are a lot of people that are struggling financially perhaps they've lost their job or they're at risk of losing their job or they've been furloughed they're on you know 20% less money a month I think people are starting to think quite differently about life so I think your insight is really really valuable so I appreciate you talking today and reflecting yeah. on everything that's happened the good and the bad you know yeah. um just before we go um the reason why your internet is garbage isn't it say again <laughs> <laughs> this sums it up I was saying just before we go there's a reason why your internet is garbage isn't it in terms of where you're living right yeah so I am um in the kind of the the, the hills I wouldn't call them mountains but I'm currently sat um talking to you from central Portugal uh on the edge of a forest so yeah I'm out in the middle of not quite the middle of nowhere but I'm on the, the edge of the the hillside above a little village so uh yeah, it's a little bit shit for, for internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> but um, even though the internet's garbage, um, I think what we'll do is speak again about your new life in Portugal, because that's a whole different episode of how you ended up there, what you're doing, how are things going socially, work-wise, financially, um, and just, yeah, how you're living life differently in Portugal. So look forward to the But for, for the time being, thank you so, so much, for talking today it's been a real kind of journey down memory lane it's really yeah smile a lot thank you I'm excited that I'm your first episode as well so I, I can't wait to see your <laughs> interview as well and to see other people's experiences as well that's going to be really cool so 
It's going to be awesome. Thanks, Ellie. No worries, sis. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope that it's inspired you in some way. I personally remember being so proud of Ellie for making this move in her life. And I know that she definitely inspired us when we decided to live and work abroad for a couple of years. I loved how you could hear the enjoyment in her voice. She sounds so happy with a big and scary decision that she made. And the fact that she's still living abroad is awesome. Right then, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd be very grateful if you could rate and review our podcast and share it with friends and family so that we can reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can also follow our own adventures by connecting with our website and social media channels. Links are in the show notes. So that's it for now, but look out for Ellie's follow-up episode about her life in a different country and a new episode from a woman who lives life as a bicycle nomad. Bye for now. Take care. Stay safe.